indeed. This is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you, with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. For we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely, just as you have partially understood us, that we are your reason for pride, just as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Because of this confidence, I plan to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit and to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on my journey to Judea. Now, when I planned this, was I of two minds? Or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. Good morning. I tell you, it has been a rough couple of months. I got COVID in December, and then we took a group of people to uh, Israel, and I got something there, and it's just like I've had this fog and fatigue ever since. But thank you for those of you who are uh, praying for me. Yesterday, I think, was a real turning point and feeling much better today. Honestly, all week I was thinking, I am not sure I'm going to be able to think straight to preach on Sunday, so... Uh, you're saying, Brad, I don't know that you ever think straight to preach on Sunday. <laughs> Let's pray together. He- Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, our confidence in knowing that your word is living and active, that your Holy Spirit uses your word to speak to each soul. And so this is our prayer, Lord, because people are in this place to hear from you. So do your work through Christ, I pray. Amen. I wonder if I were to ask everybody who feels like you are a leader to raise your hand, how many would actually raise your hands? Um, but I got some definitions of leadership that I think are, 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 are really helpful. A leadership is just somebody who adds value to others, they say. I read somebody else recently who said, a leader is somebody, today a leader is somebody who can get along with others. I think that we would all agree that leadership is influence. That means that the greatest leaders are not necessarily positional leaders. I don't know if you remember when Alexis de Tocqueville came to the United States in the early 19th century to 
to understand American greatness. He studied American prisons, but he also was trying to understand American greatness, and he wrote that book, those two books, uh, two volumes, Amer uh, uh, Democracy in America. And, and you know what, do you remember what he said was the key to American greatness? Mothers. He said the greatness of America is because of the greatness of the character of the mothers who pass on morals and values and priorities, character to the next generation. But how many people today would say, you know the key leaders in the world? Mothers. Jesus would though. Remember that time that Jesus talked about, it? he said, you know, you know the rulers of the Gentiles, how they lord it over them. They see it as power and authority. But Jesus said, not so with you. And as long as Jesus was among them, it was not so with them. Jesus said, on the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first, whoever wants to lead, must become slave of all. Jesus could not have been more clear that leadership is not about power, position, title. It is about influence, serving. You know who understands this today as well as anybody? Social media people, young people. What do they call the people who are leaders on social media? They call them social media. Don't be bashful. Social media influencers. And some of them are making millions of dollars influencing around them. If only, if only a preacher's sermon could become social media influencing kind of thing, think what a financial boom that would be for new life. Kind of thing. But it hasn't happened yet. Uh, I think I have the legs for it, though. No. Um, when Jesus calls his followers to follow them, he calls us to be the greatest influencers of all, doesn't he? He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. City set on a hill cannot be hidden. Go influence in my name. The question is, how well are we influencing? How would you measure your own effectiveness as a social influencer today? Well, that's why I'm glad we're in 2 Corinthians. I, I, we're going to go through the book of 2 Corinthians um, this year. We're going to take our time. Uh, going to take a couple of breaks f through it. But um, it's such a good letter because it's a letter of encouragement. And we need encouragement. And it really applies to our generation. But in this part, beginning with verse chapter 12, I think Paul, by his own example, shows us what it means to be an effective influencer for the name of Christ. I want you to apply this on two levels. First of all, I want you to think about who are the people who are influencers in your life? Who are the influencers that you are allowing to have primary influence on you? Second, measure your own influence. And it's a perfect day to have a service fair because the best way to influence is through serving. And if you're wanting to find a way to serve in the church, as I mean, God has gifted you and called you to serve. So, Find a way to connect, um, to connect. Uh, I forgot to say this last service. You know what people want most when they come, when they get involved in a church? They want to know and to be known. No better way to know other people and to be known than to serve with others. Well, the first quality of an influencer that Paul describes is integrity. Listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, this is our boast, 
The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you with godly sincerity and purity. That's integrity. Paul uses the word conscience. Maybe you want to underline that. We have a clear conscience, he says, because of our integrity. A lot of confusion about conscience today. A lot of people think that conscience is this automatically positive thing. You know, I learned about conscience from Jiminy Cricket. You know, how about you from Pinocchio? Remember, always let your conscience be your guide. But if there's one thing we've learned in the last generation, it is don't always let your conscience be your guide. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a person, and in the end, it leads to death. Remember the Nazi Nuremberg trials? Remember Eichmann's trial? Adolf Eichmann was basically the architect of the Holocaust, and proudly so. He was the one. It was his idea to gather the Jews into ghettos. It was his idea to cart them off to concentration camps. He had no sense of of apology. Great pride in the final solution and the execution of six million Jews. At his trial, people expected to see a monster, to, to find a sociopath, a psychopath, but they were shocked to find a man who was normal. In fact, the psychologists examined him and declared him to be normal. He was a good husband. He was a loving father. He was a normal government bureaucrat doing what he was told to do. On trial, Eichmann insisted he was not a murderer. His conscience demanded that he follow the orders of his superiors, even though those orders meant the starvation and execution of millions of innocent people. All without a twinge of conscience. There's a way that seems right to a person, and in the end it leads to death. The Bible describes conscience in several ways. There is such a thing as a good conscience. A good conscience is educated by the Bible and therefore it feels good about doing good and it feels bad about doing bad. Carl Jung, in fact, called this, he said, the still small voice that tells us something is out of tune. But there's another kind of conscience, that's a weak conscience the Bible describes. The weak conscience is the conscience that feels guilty whether or not it should. I've confessed to you before that one of my primary emotions is guilt. If I do something bad, I feel guilty. If I do something good, I feel guilty because I think, why wasn't I doing this good thing before? Or somebody else would do it better kind of thing. It's just like, any of you feel false guilt? Any of you, yeah. Um, H.L. Mencken described this kind of guilt. False you know, a weak conference, conscience, is, he says, is, is, um, is the mother-in-law whose visit never ends. Think about it. It's the mother just always on you for something. The Bible also describes a seared conscience. A seared conscience is a dead conscience. You sear your conscience when you commit the sin over and over and over and over again And if that sin has an echo chamber of people around you saying, oh, that's not sin, it's a good thing, that's a good thing, it's a good thing, it's a good thing, it's a good thing, you're entitled to that, that's a loving thing, that's a loving thing, it's a loving thing, the conscience gets seared and dies. 
Warren Wiersbe said, the conscience is the window that lets in the light. If the window gets dirty, the light gets dimmer and dimmer until it is no more. We live in a generation of seared consciences. But to have a healthy conscience, a good conscience, we need to have a, an educated conscience, a conscience that's educated by the Bible. That's why we need to read the Bible and we need to hear sermons and when we need to study the Bible with other people. Then our conscience can be clean and free in Christ. Paul here says the testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world, out there, and especially toward you specifically with godly sincerity and purity, integrity. Who comes to mind when you think of integrity? People who conduct themselves the same no matter where they are. Um, people are consistent in their morality, in their words. I think of people like uh, you know, Ben Watson or Daryl Green, same person in private as he is in public. Tim Tebow, constantly taking criticism for being consistent with his Christianity. Who are the people that you look up to? Who are you following because they are people of integrity? Who's following you because of your integrity? Another word to highlight here is the word purity. Paul says, I conducted myself with purity. The word there in the original, for those of you who would like your Greek, is hagios. It's the word for holiness. I conducted myself in holiness. Now, let's be honest, purity and holiness have kind of fallen on hard times recently, and I understand it's, those are hard things. I can relate to St. Augustine, who one time prayed, God, make me pure, but just not yet. <laughs> you know, you ever pray that? God, I want to be pure in my thoughts, but right now, I want to be angry at this person. God, make me pure, but I really don't want to forgive this person. God, make me pure, but after Thanksgiving, because right now I just want to indulge. You know, God made me pure, but not yet. Paul's conscience is clear because he lived a holy life. And so while I think it's fair, it's not fair to demand perfection of our leaders, it is right for us to expect them to want to follow in Jesus' steps, to seek to live a pure and holy life, Ask yourself, do you expect holiness of those who influence you? Do you expect purity of the pundits that you listen to, the entertainers you approve? Do you expect holiness of those who influence your children? Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 39, can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everybody who's fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus makes it really clear. We are always being discipled all the time. Our children are being discipled all the time. And there are a lot of parents that are perplexed that once their kids reach their 20s or their, their late teens, that now they're getting away from the church. They're getting away from faith. And they're wondering, why is that? Could it be because when they were three, four, five years old, 
Let me say it like this. Years ago, Laura and I were talking to a wise woman and she said to us, you know, as long as your kids are in the home, you're their heroes. The parents are their heroes. But as soon as they go to school, their teachers are their heroes. And before long, their peers become their heroes. I would add to that now, as soon as they get a phone or computer, people on the internet become their heroes. She asked us the question, when your kids are young, who do you want to be their heroes? I'm so thankful for teachers who are Christian, who are doing their best to have a Christian influence in public schools, but it's hard because our public schools are committed to secularism. It makes it very difficult for teachers to be Christian, to speak Christian things. Is it any wonder when our kids are three, four, five, six, seven years old, their heroes become secular people. They become blind guides and the blind lead the blind and lead them to a pit. Parents, let me ask, who are the teachers that you follow? Who are the authors that you read? Sometimes I hear Christians say, I like to read a diversity of opinions. And that's not all bad. Read your Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to read all this Christian. But if the primary people that you are reading are fools, no matter what diversity of foolishness you get, you're going to follow fools. You're going to be influenced by fools primarily. We send our kids to college and they're influenced by people that are not godly. And we wonder why they start thinking in ways that their mind is not transformed to Christ. Beware the preachers you support, the social media influencers you follow. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everybody who's fully trained will be just like his teacher. Would you describe the people who are influencing you and your children as pure? why it's so important to be a good example for our kids, to read them the Bible in the home, to make them, to have them be involved in youth ministry activities. Purity. Uh, next, Paul talks about godly sincerity as part of his integrity. We're going to talk about, I don't have time for that right now, we're going to talk about that in a devotional later this week. The second characteristic, though, of a godly influencer is clarity of communication. One of the greatest challenges of leadership is communicating clearly. It is so easy to miscommunicate. I was reminded of that when I saw these pictures recently. Here's a picture of a guy who says, you know, hands free now. <laughs> it's the law. It's always following the law. I like this guy. You know, says, I don't know if you can tell or not, but, you know, here's where you're supposed to ride the bike, and it's a stream, and so he's riding in the stream. Okay, I love this one. If your dog poops, pick it up, please. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing what he's told. Miscommunication is so easy. It's why it's important for us to communicate with clarity. See, Paul here has been accused of duplicity, of saying one thing and doing another. And so Paul here writes in verse 13, what we are writing, we are writing to you nothing other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely. Paul's saying there's no hidden message. 
No hidden motives. I'm trying to communicate clearly. No duplicity. Beware the leader who sacrifices clarity for acceptability. The preacher who is afraid to take a strong biblical stand because is afraid of losing audience. The politician who specializes in strategic ambiguity, what George Orwell called sheer cloudy vagueness. You wanna hear cloudy vagueness looks like, purposeful? There's a story in the Old Testament of the Bible, Joseph is a hero, but he has brothers who don't like him. And so his dad sends him one day basically to spy on them, see if they're doing their work out of town. And, and, and they see Joseph coming and they say, let's kill him. No, let's sell him into slavery. So they sell him into slavery and they think, now what are we gonna tell dad? Oh, I know. And they take his coat and they cover it with blood and they take it to dad. They don't say a word. They just give the coat to dad, cover with blood, torn up. And dad says, oh, my son, has been torn apart by wild beasts. Now they know better. They've not directly told a lie. They've just been strategically ambiguous. It's called doublespeak. So he said doublespeak is language which pretends to communicate but doesn't. It is language that makes the bad seem good, the negative seem positive, the unpleasant seem attractive, or at least tolerable. We hear so much doublespeak today, we're numb to it, aren't we? If we're not wise to it. Porn is adult entertainment. Being passed out drunk is sleeping off the party last night. Not telling students that they're national merit scholars is called sensitivity, equity. Raising taxes is called investing in the future. Homosexuality, is, homosexual sin is called love. Killing the unborn is called women's health. Brainwashing is, is sometimes called sensitivity training. People who stand by the Bible are called fundamentalist tyrants, while those who don't believe the Bible are called on the right side of history. Somebody said, doublespeak is not a slip of the tongue or a mistaken use of language. It's exactly the opposite. It is language used by people who are very intelligent and very sophisticated in the use of language and know that you can do an awful lot with language. You can do an awful lot to intimidate and confuse. Paul says, I write to you. I'm writing clearly so everybody can understand if you turn on one of those talking head shows today in the newscast, you will hear doublespeak after doublespeak after doublespeak after doublespeak. In church circles, some are purposely vague about the Bible. It's interesting, you go on a website to somebody, some churches that don't believe the Bible. They don't say, we don't believe the Bible. They'll say things like, we believe the Bible is central to faith. Central to faith, what's that mean? Or they'll say, we believe that God's truth is found in the Bible. Not the Bible is God's truth, but it's found there. They speak about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they're not talking about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're talking about Jesus' ideas were resurrected. 
Um, I love to talk to Mormon missionaries. I feel great compassion for them and like to have good conversations with them, but they're full of doublespeak. You know, they'll, they'll say Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't mean Son of God the way the Bible does. They mean Jesus is the Son of God the same way all of you men can become sons of God and become gods in your own planets once you die if you're a Mormon. Leaders worthy of following state what they believe clearly regardless of public opinion or popularity. And we have a responsibility to ask clarifying questions of those that we follow. We need to ask, what do you believe about the truth? Is it personal or is it biblical? What do you think about the Bible? Is it God's word or is it man's evolving understanding of God? What's your stand on abortion? Do you believe that all human life is sacred? What's your stand on marriage? Do you believe that marriage is sacred, defined by God? What do you believe about gender? Do you believe that gender is sacred? Or do you believe it's a human construct? We are to speak the truth in love, the Bible says, but we are to speak the truth and know the truth. Jesus did. Jesus was so clear for everybody who wanted clarity. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus was asked, are you the Messiah? And Jesus responded, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? We've heard the blasphemy. Speaking the truth, God, Jesus crucified. But he spoke the truth boldly. Thomas Sowell had a great insight. He said, when you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. What do you demand of your leaders? People who tell the truth or just say what sounds good. Jesus loves you so much that he tells you the truth, that you're dead in your trespasses and sins, that you need a savior, that he came to die for you, to wash away your sins. And if you will believe in him, you can know forgiveness of sins, right relationship with God, eternal life, but he is the only, he is the only one who's come to save you. He's the way to God. He tells the truth, and that's why we should follow him. Third quality of a powerful leader is transparency. No pretense. Paul's being criticized by some there in Corinth because he changed his plans. Remember, when we read earlier, he said, um, I planned to see you when I was going west to Macedonia, and then again when I went east, was going back east to, to Judea, to Jerusalem, but it didn't work out. And people were criticizing him. What, are you ambivalent? Are you just kind of not making, are you making promises and you're not serious about the promises that you make? You're just changing your mind? Well, the fact is that we should actually be surprised that Paul didn't change his travel plans more often. Even we have trouble sometimes keeping our travel plans. Stuff just happens. I heard about a man who went to an airport counter and made a strange request. He said to the person behind the counter, could you do something for me? He says, I have, I have two bags here. Could you send one bag to Cleveland and the other bag to Atlanta? She said, no, sir, I'm, I'm sorry. I appreciate your request, but we can't, we can't do that. He said, oh, yes, you can. You did that last week, and I didn't even ask you. 
stuff happens when we travel that's out of our control, and stuff happens to Paul as well. Verse 17, Paul said, when I plan, do I purely uh, plan in a human way so that it's yes and yes and no and no at the same time? As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. Later on in verse 23 that we'll talk about next week, he says, I call on God as my witness on my life that it was to spare you that I didn't come to Corinth. Paul explains. He didn't have to. He could have said, it's none of your business. I just, I just couldn't make it. He could have said, I'm an apostle. You know, who are you to question me? Have you heard it said that you should never explain because you're, if you're explaining, you're losing? There are a lot of people that never explain. Why? Because it makes you vulnerable. Paul here is vulnerable, but that's so like Paul. I love, I so appreciate in Romans chapter seven where Paul says, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil I want to do, that I sometimes do. A wretched man that I am who will save me from this bondage of death. Am I the only one in this room that can relate to that? Oh, Paul, thanks for being so transparent. You know, 52% of employees say what they really want more in the office is transparency. A Springtide Research Institute survey of 10,000 American young people between age 13 and 25 asked about their views of church and even though it's a generation that is going to church less and less they said they would be open if there was relational authority what's relational authority five values that characterized it first listening second transparency third integrity fourth care fifth expertise isn't it interesting three out of the five have to do with compassion. In the top two, listening and transparency. Cabot Roberts was right when he said it so long ago, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Transparency means openness. So, that's hard. Wall Street Journal asked a number of doctors, do you take your own advice? One doctor noted that doctors often warn their patients of stress and how they need to change their lifestyle so they cannot be so stressed. But according to a survey by Johns Hopkins and the Mayo Clinic, 40% of surgeons admitted to having unhealthy work habits. One doctor of internal medicine from California was honest. He said, we tell our patients to avoid stress, not to work too hard, to balance their professional and personal lives. Yet many of us who dole out this advice completely ignore it ourselves. We ignore it because it is darn hard to follow. Rather than closing our eyes to this well-meaning bit of hypocrisy, we would do well to confess our own struggles to our patients. That's transparency. Not being perfect, but laying down image control. It's one of the reasons that I've admired Bob Russell through the years. Bob Russell's been a friend of the family, or families have been friends for a long time, still are. Um, but I've always just appreciated how, how open he is. When I was in high school, I went to hear him speak in Pittsburgh. His sister, I went down with his sister. And, and during that talk, I'll never forget, he talked about how one night he was making a decision between watching something that was funny but scantily clad women were on it or the news 
And he really wrestled with it. He was watching this funny thing and he thought, you know, I think God would rather that I laugh than get depressed by the news. You know, he starts rationalizing and he realized, I shouldn't be watching this. This is, this is enticing me to lust. I said to Roseanne afterward, his sister, I said, Roseanne, sometimes I'm shocked by how honest Bob can be. Roseanne said, yeah. And some of us in his family wish he wouldn't be so honest in public sometimes. Kind of embarrassing. But a couple of years ago, he, he outdid himself. He was speaking at a conference in Richmond to mostly ministers and their wives and elders and their wives. And, and he told about a time in his ministry when there was a woman in the church that had developed a relationship with him and he thought it was innocent. But one one night after a service, she came up to his office. They have a huge building. It was a church of 20,000, and so, you know, you could imagine how big this building is. She comes up to his office, closes the door behind her, and says, Bob, it's just the two of us. No one will ever know. And Bob told the group, got to be honest, that was tempta- it was tempting. But he said, I remembered my parents and how disappointed they would be, and I remembered my family and how crushed they would be. And I remember my wife and how she told me, Bob, if you are ever unfaithful, I will be a divorced murderer. (laughs) And Bob Bob said, Judy, if you kill me, you won't have to divorce me. She said, oh, I won't divorce you. I, will, I, won't, I won't kill you. I'll kill her and divorce you, and you'll have to live with it the rest of your life. I, you know, I thought about that. Bob, Bob shared probably four or five um, seminars that, in those couple of days. And I don't know what anybody else, I don't know what people remembered from everything else, but I can guarantee you nobody forgot that story. If you put on a show, if you have a facade, people may admire you from a distance. But if you're transparent, people can love you up close. That's why it's so important for us to have groups like Celebrate Recovery, where people can go and share their hurts and hang-ups and habits and be loved, be accepted. I don't care what your sin has been. I don't care how bad you think you have been and how long you have struggled. This is a place for you to be honest about your struggle. Don't lie about it. Don't say it's not sin. But we will love you no matter where you are. I think it's kind of interesting. There was a survey that was done by Dr. Perry um, Puffington, research psychologist. He said there are three situations where people are not themselves. First, the average person puts on airs when he visits a lobby at a fancy hotel. Second, we try to hide our emotions when we're in a new car showroom. Third, when we take our seat in church, we try to pretend to others and to God that we're more spiritual than we actually are. I said it before, you know what people really want in a church? They want a place where they can know and be known. 
let's be committed to be a church of transparency. I'm not saying everybody needs to know, but that's why we all need a small group. It's why it's great to serve. You know a great place to, be, to know and be known when you serve with a small group of people. It's dangerous. Some of you are like, I'm afraid to be, I don't want other people to know who I am. Oh, but it's what your heart longs for. It's what makes us leaders like Christ. Wasn't he transparent? Well, we're out of time, and I just have one more um, point to, to make. The other characteristic of a godly influencer is humility. They rely on God and give God glory. Paul says in verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you. Paul's point was not to lift himself up. It was to rely on God and to lift up Christ. And that's what we are to do. That's what good leaders do, even political leaders. I have been impressed reading recently a book by Michael Medved called The American Miracle, Divine Providence in the Rise of the Republic. Fascinating. By the way, he's not some you know, right-wing Christian. He's Jewish. But he quotes from founders and, 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 and how they looked to rely on God and then gave God glory when God did great stuff. I'll just give you a couple of examples. George Washington. I wish I could give you lots. There's tons. But George Washington, in a, in a letter, wrote, The man must be bad indeed who can look upon the events of the American Revolution without feeling the warmest gratitude toward the great author of the universe whose divine interposition was so frequently manifested, so frequently manifested on our behalf. And remember, it was George Washington who declared the first national thanksgiving to give thanks to God, the God of the Bible. I love that He says, only a really bad person would deny God's providence and blessing. They looked for God's leadership. They honored God for his leadership. Remember Abraham Lincoln's words? Lincoln, who really only became serious about Christ after becoming president, said, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of others around me seemed insufficient for the day. Everybody complains today about poor leadership running for president, poor leadership in Washington. Can I suggest to you the problem is not poor leadership in Washington, it is poor leadership among Americans. Do we expect our leaders to rely on God and to look for him? Do we expect them to have godly morals? Do we even care? If they're concerned about laws that reflect God's laws? The laws of reality? Spiritual leaders are humble enough to lift up Christ and to give him credit. Beware the spiritual leader who expects special treatment, special parking places, center of attention. I've tried. Doesn't work. You know, you look at our end zone sign out there. It just says end zone and New Life Christian Church and our service times. I campaigned. I thought we should have a really big picture of me and it said Brett Andrews, Prime Minister. You know, it's like, but I got outvoted for that one. Beware the minister who's phony, always happy. Like, I mean, no, I've never had a problem in my life. It's like, come on, give me a break. Beware the minister who always has to have 
his name up and picture there. There's a reason why I don't preach in, um, in August because I want everybody to know this is not my church and I need to remember it's not my church. It's a reason that we have lots of people preach in this from this stage. Um, there was a there was a sign that used to be put on old pulpits before somebody would preach the sign would say the sign said we would see Jesus whenever I stand before you today uh, on a Sunday morning I realize you have not come to hear me you've come to hear Jesus and here's the thing that's what people are looking for in your life as well that's what they need whether they realize it or not they need to look at your life because deep inside, whether they identify it or not, that which is eternal within them says, we would see Jesus. And they will if we are people of integrity and clarity and transparency and humility. By the way, <laughs> that's Jesus. Integrity, no fault in him. Clarity, never spoke a man like a, a man like this before. Transparency, he walked where we walked. Humility. He sought to do the Father's will and to glorify Him. That is why He alone is worthy of our complete trust. And we are wise to follow leaders like Jesus and to be influencers like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word and that it is so rich. We hardly even... I mean, we didn't even have time to touch on so much from this. Lord, what is our next step with you with, in our lives? In a world that desperately needs the light of Jesus, Lord, may your light so shine in us that people will see your glory and be drawn to you. So we surrender all right now desiring to be your people. Through Christ I pray, amen.